Chapter Four of Twenty Years at Hull House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Twenty Years at Hull House by Jane Addams. Chapter Four, The Snare of Preparation. The winter after I left school was spent in the Woman's Medical College of Philadelphia but the development of the spinal difficulty which had shadowed me from childhood forced me into Dr. Weir Mitchell's hospital for the late spring, and the next winter I was literally bound to a bed in my sister's house for six months. In spite of its tedium, the long winter had its mitigations, for after the first few weeks I was able to read with a luxurious consciousness of leisure, and I remember opening the first volume of Carlyle's Frederick the Great with a lively sense of gratitude that it was not Gray's Anatomy, having found, like many another, that general culture is a much easier undertaking than professional study. The long illness inevitably put aside the immediate prosecution of a medical course, and although I had passed my examinations creditably enough in the required subjects for the first year, I was very glad to have a physician's sanction for giving up clinics and dissecting-rooms, and to follow his prescription of spending the next two years in Europe. Before I returned to America I had discovered that there were other genuine reasons for living among the poor than that of practicing medicine upon them, and my brief foray into the profession was never resumed. The long illness left me in a state of nervous exhaustion with which I struggled for years, traces of it remaining long after Hull House was opened in 1889. At the best it allowed me but a limited amount of energy, so that doubtless there was much nervous depression at the foundation of the spiritual struggles with which this chapter is forced to record. However, it could not have been all due to my health, for as my wise little notebook sententiously remarked, in his own way each man must struggle, lest the moral law become a far-off abstraction utterly separated from his active life. It would, of course, be impossible to remember that some of these struggles ever took place at all, were it not for these self-same notebooks, in which, however, I no longer wrote in moments of high resolve, but judging from the internal evidence afforded by the books themselves, only in moments of deep depression when overwhelmed by a sense of failure. One of the most poignant of these experiences, which occurred during the first few months after our landing upon the other side of the Atlantic, was on a Saturday night when I received an ineradicable impression of the wretchedness of East London, and also saw for the first time the overcrowded quarters of a great city at midnight. A small party of tourists were taken to the East End by a city missionary to witness the Saturday night sale of decaying vegetables and fruit, which owing to the Sunday laws in London could not be sold until Monday, and as they were beyond safe-keeping, were disposed of at auction as late as possible on Saturday night. On Mile End Road, from the top of an omnibus which paused at the end of a dingy street lighted only by occasional flares of gas, we saw two huge masses of ill-clad people clamouring around two hucksters' carts. They were bidding their farthings and halfpennies for a vegetable held up by the auctioneer, which he at last scornfully flung, with a jibe for its cheapness, to the successful bidder. In the momentary pause only one man detached himself from the groups. He had bidden in a cabbage, and when it struck his hand, he instantly sat down on the curb, tore it with his teeth, and hastily devoured it, unwashed and uncooked as it was. 
He and his fellows were types of the submerged tenth, as our missionary guide told us, with some little satisfaction in the then-new phrase, and he further added that so many of them could scarcely be seen in one spot, save at this Saturday-night auction, the desire for cheap food being apparently the one thing which could move them simultaneously. They were huddled into ill-fitting, cast-off clothing, the ragged finery which one sees only in East London. Their pale faces were dominated by that most unlovely of human expressions, the cunning and shrewdness of the bargain-hunter who starves if he could not make a successful trade, and yet the final impression was not of ragged, tawdry clothing, nor of pinched and sallow faces, but of myriads of hands, empty, pathetic, nerveless and work-worn, showing white in the uncertain light of the street, and clutching forward for food which was already unfit to eat. Perhaps nothing is so fraught with significance as the human hand, this oldest tool with which man has dug his way from savagery, and with which he is constantly groping forward. I have never since been able to see a number of hands held upward, even when they are moving rhythmically in a calisthenic exercise, or when they belong to a class of chubby children, who wave them in eager response to a teacher's query, without a certain revival of this memory, a clutching at the heart reminiscent of the despair and resentment which seized me then. For the following weeks I went about London almost furtively, afraid to look down narrow streets and alleys, lest they disclose again this hideous human need and suffering. I carried with me for days at a time that curious surprise we experience when we first come back to the streets after days given over to sorrow and death. We are bewildered that the world should be going on as usual, and unable to determine which is real, the inner pang or the outward seeming. In time all huge London came to seem unreal save the poverty in its east end. During the following two years on the continent, while I was irresistibly drawn to the poorer quarters of each city, nothing among the beggars of South Italy, nor among the salt-miners of Austria, carried with it the same conviction of human wretchedness which was conveyed by this momentary glimpse of an East London street. It was, of course, a most fragmentary and lurid view of the poverty of East London, and quite unfair. I should have been shown either less or more, for I went away with no notion of the hundreds of men and women who had gallantly identified their fortunes with these empty-handed people, and who in church and chapel, relief-works and charities, were at least making an effort towards its mitigation. Our visit was made in November 1883, the very year when the Pall Mall Gazette exposure started, the bitter cry of outcast London, and the conscience of England was stirred as never before over this joyless city in the east end of its capital. Even then vigorous and drastic plans were being discussed, and a splendid programme of municipal reforms was already dimly outlined. Of all these, however, I had heard nothing but the vaguest rumour. No comfort came to me then from any source, and the painful impression was increased because at the very moment of looking down the East London street from the top of the omnibus, I had been sharply and painfully reminded of the vision of sudden death, which had confronted De Quincey one summer's night as he was being driven through rural England on a high mail-coach. Two absorbed lovers suddenly appear between the narrow, blossoming hedgerows, in the direct path of the huge vehicle, which is sure to crush them to their death. De Quincey tries to send them a warning shout, but finds himself unable to make a sound, because his mind is hopelessly entangled in an endeavour to recall the exact lines from the Iliad, which describe the great cry with which Achilles alarmed all Asia militant. 
Only after his memory responds is his will released from its momentary paralysis, and he rides on through the fragrant night with the horror of the escaped calamity thick upon him, but he also bears with him the consciousness that he had given himself over so many years to classic learning, that when suddenly called upon for a quick decision in the world of life and death, he had been able to act only through a literary suggestion. This is what we were all doing, lumbering our minds with literature that only served to cloud the really vital situation spread before our eyes. It seemed to me too preposterous that in my first view of the horror of East London I should have recalled De Quincey's literary description of the literary suggestion which had once paralyzed him. In my disgust it all appeared a hateful, vicious circle, which even the apostles of culture themselves admitted, for had not one of the greatest among the moderns plainly said that, conduct, and not culture, is three-fourths of human life. For two years in the midst of my distress over the poverty which, thus suddenly driven into my consciousness, had become to me the Weltschmerz, there was mingled a sense of futility, of misdirected energy, the belief that the pursuit of cultivation would not in the end bring either solace or relief. I gradually reached a conviction that the first generation of college women had taken their learning too quickly, had departed too suddenly from the active emotional life led by their grandmothers and great-grandmothers that the contemporary education of young women had developed too exclusively the power of acquiring knowledge and of merely receiving impressions, that somewhere in the process of being educated they had lost that simple and almost automatic response to the human appeal, that old healthful reaction resulting in activity from the mere presence of suffering or of helplessness, that they are so sheltered and pampered they have no chance even to make the great refusal. In the German and French pensions, which twenty-five years ago were crowded with American mothers and their daughters who had crossed the seas in search of culture, one often found the mother making real connection with the life about her, using her inadequate German with great fluency, gaily measuring the enormous sheets or exchanging recipes with the German hausfrau, visiting impartially the nearest kindergarten and market, making an atmosphere of her own, hearty and genuine as far as it went, in the house and on the street. On the other hand, her daughter was critical and uncertain of her linguistic acquirements, and only at ease when in the familiar receptive attitude afforded by the art gallery and opera house. In the latter she was swayed and moved, appreciative of the power and charm of the music, intelligent as to the legend and poetry of the plot, finding use for her trained and developed powers as she sat, being cultivated, in the familiar atmosphere of the classroom, which had, as it were, become sublimated and romanticized. I remember a happy, busy mother, who, complacent with the knowledge that her daughter daily devoted four hours to her music, looked up from her knitting to say, "'If I had had your opportunities when I was young, my dear, I should have been a very happy girl. I always had musical talent, but such training as I had, foolish little songs and waltzes, and not time for half an hour's practice a day.' The mother did not dream of the sting her words left, and that the sensitive girl appreciated only too well that her opportunities were fine and unusual, but she also knew that in spite of some facility and much good teaching, she had no genuine talent and never would fulfill the expectations of her friends. She looked back upon her mother's girlhood with positive envy, because it was so full of happy industry and extenuating obstacles, with undisturbed opportunity to believe that her talents were unusual. The girl looked wistfully at her mother, but had not the courage to cry out what was in her heart. I might believe I had unusual talent if I did not know what good music was. I might enjoy half an hour's practice a day if I were busy and happy the rest of the time. 
You do not know what life means when all the difficulties are removed. I am simply smothered and sickened with advantages. It is like eating a sweet dessert the first thing in the morning." This, then, was the difficulty, this sweet dessert in the morning and the assumption that the sheltered, educated girl has nothing to do with the bitter poverty and the social maladjustment which is all about her, and which, after all, cannot be concealed, for it breaks through poetry and literature in a burning tide which overwhelms her. It peers at her in the form of heavy-laden market-women and underpaid street-laborers, gibing her with a sense of her uselessness. I recall one snowy morning in Saxe-Coburg, looking from the window of our little hotel upon the town square, that we saw crossing and recrossing it a single file of women with semicircular, heavy wooden tanks fastened upon their backs. They were carrying in this primitive fashion to a remote cooling-room these tanks filled with a hot brew, incident to one stage of beer-making. The women were bent forward, not only under the weight which they were bearing, but because the tanks were so high that it would have been impossible for them to have lifted their heads. Their faces and hands, reddened in the cold morning air, showed clearly the white scars where they had previously been scalded by the hot stuff, which splashed if they stumbled ever so little on their way. Stung into action by one of those sudden indignations against cruel conditions which at times fill the young with unexpected energy, I found myself across the square, in company with mine host, interviewing the phlegmatic owner of the brewery, who received us with exasperating indifference, or rather received me, for the innkeeper mysteriously slunk away as soon as the great magnet of the town began to speak. I went back to a breakfast for which I had lost my appetite, as I had for Gray's Life of Prince Albert and his wonderful tutor, Baron Stockmar, which I had been reading late the night before. The book had lost its fascination. How could a good man, feeling so keenly his obligation to make princely the mind of his prince, ignore such conditions of life for the multitude of humble, hard-working folk? We were spending two months in Dresden that winter, given over to much reading of the history of art, and after such an experience I would invariably suffer a moral revulsion against this feverish search after culture. It was doubtless in such moods that I founded my admiration for Albrecht Dürer, taking his wonderful pictures, however, in the most unorthodox manner, merely as human documents. I was chiefly appealed to by his unwillingness to lend himself to a smooth and cultivated view of life, by his determination to record its frustrations, and even the hideous forms which darken the day for our human imagination, and to ignore no human complications. I believed that his canvases intimated the coming religious and social changes of the Reformation and the Peasants' Wars, that they were surcharged with pity for the downtrodden, that his sad knights, gravely standing guard, were longing to avert that shedding of blood which is sure to occur when men forget how complicated life is, and insist upon reducing it to logical dogmas. The largest sum of money that I ever ventured to spend in Europe was for an engraving of his Saint Hubert, the background of which was said to be from an original Durer plate. There is little doubt, I am afraid, that the background, as well as the figures, were put in at a later date, but the purchase at least registered the high-water mark of my enthusiasm. The wonder and beauty of Italy later brought healing and some relief to the paralyzing sense of the futility of all artistic and intellectual effort, when disconnected from the ultimate test of the conduct it inspired. The serene and soothing touch of history also aroused old enthusiasms, although some of their manifestations were such as one smiles over more easily in retrospection than at the moment. 
I fancy that it was no smiling matter to several people in our party, whom I induced to walk for three miles in the hot sunshine beating down upon the Roman Campagna, that we might enter the eternal city on foot through the Porto del Popolo, as pilgrims had done for centuries. To be sure, we had really entered Rome the night before, but the railroad station and the hotel might have been anywhere else, and we had been driven beyond the walls after breakfast and stranded at the very spot where the pilgrims always said, Ecco Roma, as they caught the first glimpse of St. Peter's Dome. This melodramatic entrance into Rome, or rather pretended entrance, was the prelude to days of enchantment, and I returned to Europe two years later in order to spend a winter there, and to carry out a great desire to systematically study the catacombs. In spite of my distrust of advantages, I was apparently not yet so cured, but that I wanted more of them. The two years which elapsed before I again found myself in Europe brought their inevitable changes. Family arrangements had so come about that I had spent three or four months of each of the intervening winters in Baltimore, where I seemed to have reached the nadir of my nervous depression and sense of maladjustment, in spite of my interest in the fascinating lectures given there by Lantiani of Rome, and a definite course of reading under the guidance of a Johns Hopkins lecturer upon the United Italy movement. In the latter I naturally encountered the influence of Mazzini, which was a source of great comfort to me although perhaps I went too suddenly from a contemplation of his wonderful ethical and philosophical appeal to the working men of Italy, directly to the lecture-rooms at Johns Hopkins University, for I was certainly much disillusioned at this time as to the effect of intellectual pursuits upon moral development. The summers were spent in the old home in northern Illinois, and one Sunday morning I received the rite of baptism, and became a member of the Presbyterian Church in the village. At this time there was certainly no outside pressure pushing me towards such a decision, and at twenty-five one does not ordinarily take such a step from a mere desire to conform. While I was not conscious of any emotional conversion, I took upon myself the outward expression of the religious life with all humility and sincerity. It was doubtless true that I was weary of myself and sick of asking what I am and what I ought to be and that various cherished safeguards and claims to self-dependence had been broken into by my many piteous failures. But certainly I had been brought to the conclusion that, sincerely to give up one's conceit or hope of being good in one's own right, is the only door to the universe's deeper reaches. Perhaps the young clergyman recognized this as the test of the Christian temper. At any rate he required little assent to dogma or miracle, and assured me that while both the ministry and the officers of his church were obliged to subscribe to doctrines of well-known severity, the faith required to the laity was almost early Christian in its simplicity. I was conscious of no change from my childish acceptance of the teachings of the Gospels, but at this moment something persuasive within me made me long for an outward symbol of fellowship, some bond of peace, some blessed spot where unity of spirit might claim right of way over all differences. There was also growing within me an almost passionate devotion to the ideals of democracy, and when in all history had these ideals been so thrillingly expressed as when the faith of the fisherman and the slave had been boldly opposed to the accepted moral belief that the well-being of a privileged few might justly be built upon the ignorance and sacrifice of the many. Who was I, with my dreams of universal fellowship, that I did not identify myself with the institutional statement of this belief, as it stood in the little village in which I was born, and without which testimony in each remote hamlet of Christendom, it would be so easy for the world to slip back into the doctrines of selection and aristocracy. In one of the intervening summers between these European journeys, I visited a western state where I had formerly invested a sum of money in mortgages. I was much horrified by the wretched conditions among the farmers, which had resulted from a long period of drought, 
and one forlorn picture was fairly burned into my mind. A number of starved hogs, collateral for a promissory note, were huddled into an open pen. Their backs were humped in a curious camel-like fashion, and they were devouring one of their own number, the latest victim of absolute starvation, or possibly merely the one least able to defend himself against their voracious hunger. The farmer's wife looked on indifferently, a picture of despair as she stood in the door of the bare, crude house, and the two children behind her, whom she vainly tried to keep out of sight, continually thrust forward their faces almost covered by masses of coarse sunburnt hair, and their little bare feet so black, so hard, the great cracks so filled with dust they looked like flattened hoofs. The children could not be compared to anything so joyous as satyrs, although they appeared but half-human. It seemed to me quite impossible to receive interest from mortgages placed upon farms which might at any season be reduced to such conditions, and with great inconvenience to my agent, and doubtless with hardship to the farmers, as speedily as possible I withdrew all my investment. But something had to be done with the money, and in my reaction against unseen horrors I bought a farm near my native village and also a flock of innocent-looking sheep. My partner in the enterprise had not chosen the shepherd's lot as a permanent occupation, but hoped to speedily finish his college course upon half the proceeds of our venture. This pastoral enterprise still seems to me to have been essentially sound, both economically and morally, but perhaps one partner depended too much upon the impeccability of her motives, and the other found himself too preoccupied with study to know that it is not a real kindness to bed a sheepfold with straw for certainly the venture ended in a spectacle scarcely less harrowing than the memory it was designed to obliterate. At least the sight of two hundred sheep with four rotting hooves each was not reassuring to one whose conscience craved economic peace. A fortunate series of sales of mutton, wool, and farm enabled the partners to end the enterprise without loss, and they passed on, one to college and the other to Europe, if not wiser, certainly sadder for the experience. It was during this second journey to Europe that I attended a meeting of the London match-girls who were on strike, and who met daily under the leadership of well-known labour-men of London. The low wages that were reported at the meetings, the fossy jaw which was described and occasionally exhibited, the appearance of the girls themselves I did not, curiously enough, in any wise connect with what was called the labour movement, nor did I understand the efforts of the London trades-unionists, concerning whom I held the vaguest notions. But of course this impression of human misery was added to the others which were already making me so wretched. I think that up to this time I was still filled with the sense which Wells describes in one of his young characters, that somewhere in church or state are a body of authoritative people who will put things to rights as soon as they really know what is wrong. Such a young person persistently believes that behind all suffering, behind sin and want, must lie redeeming magnanimity. He may imagine the world to be tragic and terrible, but it never for an instant occurs to him that it may be contemptible or squalid or self-seeking. Apparently I looked upon the efforts of the trades-unionists as I did upon those of Frederick Harrison and the positivists, whom I heard the next Sunday in Newton Hall, as a manifestation of loyalty to humanity and an attempt to aid in its progress. I was enormously interested in the positivists during those European years. I imagined that their philosophical conception of man's religious development might include all expressions of that for which so many ages of man have struggled and aspired. I vaguely hoped for this universal comedy when I stood in Stonehenge, or on the Acropolis in Athens, or in the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. But never did I so desire it as in the cathedrals of Winchester, Notre Dame, Amiens. 
One winter's day I travelled from Munich to Ulm, because I imagined from what the art-books said that the cathedral hoarded a medieval statement of the positivist's final synthesis, prefiguring their conception of a supreme humanity. In this I was not altogether disappointed. The religious history carved on the choir-stalls at Ulm contained Greek philosophers as well as Hebrew prophets, and among the disciples and saints stood the discoverer of music and a builder of pagan temples. Even then I was startled, forgetting for the moment the religious revolutions of South Germany, to catch sight of a window showing Luther as he affixed his thesis on the door at Wittenberg, the picture shining clear in the midst of the older glass of saint and symbol. My smug notebook states that all this was an admission that the saints but embodied fine action, and it proceeds at some length to set forth my hope for a cathedral of humanity, which should be capacious enough to house a fellowship of common purpose, and which should be beautiful enough to persuade men to hold fast to the vision of human solidarity. It is quite impossible for me to reproduce this experience at Ulm, unless I quote pages more from the notebook in which I seem to have written half the night, in a fever of composition cast in ill-digested phrases from Comte. It doubtless reflected also something of the faith of the old Catholics, a charming group of whom I had recently met in Stuttgart, and the same mood is easily traced in my early hopes for the settlement, that it should unite in the fellowship of the deed those of widely differing religious beliefs. The beginning of 1887 found our little party of three in very picturesque lodgings in Rome, and settled into a certain student's routine. But my study of the catacombs was brought to an abrupt end in a fortnight by a severe attack of sciatic rheumatism, which kept me in Rome with a trained nurse during many weeks, and later sent me to the Riviera to leave an invalid's life once more. Although my catacomb lore thus remained hopelessly superficial, it seemed to me a sufficient basis for a course of six lectures, which I timidly offered to a deaconess's training school during my first winter in Chicago, upon the simple ground that this early interpretation of Christianity is the one which should be presented to the poor, urging that the primitive church was composed of the poor, and that it was they who took the wonderful news to the more prosperous Romans. The open-minded head of the school gladly accepted the lectures, arranging that the course should be given each spring to her graduating class of home and foreign missionaries, and at the end of the third year she invited me to become one of the trustees of the school. I accepted, and attended one meeting of the board, but never another, because some of the older members objected to my membership on the ground that no religious instruction was given at Hull House. I remember my sympathy for the embarrassment in which the head of the school was placed, but if I needed comfort, a bit of it came to me on my way home from the trustees' meeting, when an Italian labourer paid my street-car fare, according to the custom of our simpler neighbours. Upon my inquiry of the conductor as to whom I was indebted for the little courtesy, he replied roughly enough, "'I cannot tell one dago from another when they are in a gang, but sure any one of them would do it for you as quick as they would for the sisters.' It is hard to tell just when the very simple plan which afterward developed into the settlement began to form itself in my mind. It may have been even before I went to Europe for the second time, but I gradually became convinced that it would be a good thing to rent a house in a part of the city where many primitive and actual needs are found, in which young women who had been given over too exclusively to study might restore a balance of activity along traditional lines, and learn of life from life itself where they might try out some of the things they had been taught, and put truth to the ultimate test of the conduct it dictates or inspires. I do not remember to have mentioned this plan to any one until we reached Madrid in April 1888. We had been to see a bullfight rendered in the most magnificent Spanish style, where greatly to my surprise and horror I found that I had seen, with comparative indifference, five bulls and many more horses killed. 
the sense that this was the last survival of all the glories of the amphitheatre, the illusion that the riders on the caparisoned horses might have been knights of a tournament, or the matador a slightly armed gladiator facing his martyrdom, and all the rest of the obscure yet vivid associations of an historic survival, had carried me beyond the endurance of any of the rest of the party. I finally met them in the foyer, stern and pale with disapproval of my brutal endurance, but partially recovered from the faintness and disgust which the spectacle itself had produced upon them. I had no defence to offer to their reproaches, save that I had not thought much about the bloodshed. But in the evening the natural and inevitable reaction came, and in deep chagrin I felt myself tried and condemned, not only by this disgusting experience, but by the entire moral situation which it revealed. It was suddenly made quite clear to me that I was lulling my conscience by a dreamer's scheme, that a mere paper reform had become a defence for continued idleness, and that I was making it a raison d'etre for going on indefinitely with study and travel. It is easy to become the dupe of a deferred purpose, of the promise the future can never keep, and I had fallen into the meanest type of self-deception in making myself believe that all this was in preparation for great things to come. Nothing less than the moral reaction following the experience at a bullfight had been able to reveal to me that so far from following in the wake of a chariot of philanthropic fire, I had been tied to the tail of the veriest ox-cart of self-seeking. I had made up my mind that next day, whatever happened, I would begin to carry out the plan, if only by talking about it. I can well recall the stumbling and uncertainty with which I finally set it forth to Miss Starr, my old-time school-friend, who was one of our party. I even dared to hope that she might join in carrying out the plan, but nevertheless I told it in the fear of that disheartening experience which is so apt to afflict our most cherished plans when they are at last divulged, when we suddenly feel that there is nothing there to talk about and as the golden dream slips through our fingers, we are left to wonder at our own fatuous belief. But gradually the comfort of Miss Starr's companionship, the vigour and enthusiasm which she brought to bear upon it, told both in the growth of the plan and upon the sense of its validity, so that by the time we had reached the enchantment of the Alhambra, the scheme had become convincing and tangible, although still most hazy in detail. A month later we parted in Paris, Miss Starr to go back to Italy, and I to journey on to London to secure as many suggestions as possible from those wonderful places of which we had heard, Toynbee Hall and the People's Palace. So that it finally came about that in June 1888, five years after my first visit in East London, I found myself at Toynbee Hall, equipped not only with a letter of introduction from Canon Fremantle, but with high expectations and a certain belief that whatever perplexities and discouragements concerning the life of the poor were in store for me, I should at least know something at first hand, and have the solace of daily activity. I had confidence that although life itself might contain many difficulties, the period of mere passive receptivity had come to an end, and I had at last finished with the everlasting preparation for life, however ill-prepared I might be. It was not until years afterwards that I came upon Tolstoy's phrase, the snare of preparation, which he insists we spread before the feet of young people, hopelessly entangling them in a curious inactivity at the very period of life when they are longing to construct the world anew, and to conform it to their own ideals. End of chapter 4